deserves loving. Everyone deserves a soul. Supported loving is raising awareness. Everyone should have someone to hold. Welcome to the fifth episode of Supported Loving Podcast. I'm Claire Bates, your host. I'm here with my co-host, Gillian Leno. Hello. And we're also joined by our third co-host, Sally Warren. Hello, Paradise. Hello. Uh, and today we thought we would do something a little bit different. Um, we've thrown the, the, the questions out to the, the Twitterverse and we've had some interesting questions come back. So we're going to do a Q&A yeah. with the three of us here. So... Yeah, let's just hopefully we'll get some good discussion going. And uh, yeah, you want to take us away? Sure, shall I just get us started? So, the first one is what should and these these we these are come from staff rather than clients. It sounds like so. What should I do if family or carers don't want my client to have any as a sexual information, but I guess support or advice etc around intimate sexual life or relationship yeah so that's the first question so what should i do well, over to you, over to you. <laughs> do you know what, what comes to my mind straight away is that presentation liz wilson from dimensions did for us at the last supported loving workshop mm. and i suppose the message i got in my head is don't judge the parents badly try and understand why they're feeling that way mm. what could be causing them concern and understand that it's not easy for them always to talk about sex and sexuality with their children so i'm very mindful of what liz says and i think i would suggest that people have a chat with the family and try and explore in a non-aggressive non-judgmental way what's going on what are their worries what are their concerns um and how can they reassure them that the approach the conversations with their child, however old their child is, will be thoughtful and well informed. Um, you know, but I, it's hard, isn't it? Because in the end, it's an adult's right to have the information as well. But I think not judging yeah. the family and trying to understand where they're at and have the conversation is pretty important. Well, we were we had a we were in a meeting this morning where we were sort of talking about people's understanding and knowledge of their rights, mm-hmm. and one of the things that came up quite a lot was, you know. Do do people know what their rights are? And as an extension of that, do do parents, family, carers know what the rights are? Absolutely. You know. Yeah. Um, so I suppose that plays a big part of it. I mean, for us, because I, you know, I'm in an education setting, so I have uh, young adults that I'm working with. Some are under eighteen, some are over eighteen, mm. and I, I sometimes get um, parents saying, "Well, you know, my." my child is a child you know they're under 18 you can't tell them this stuff it's actually when it comes to uh, advice and information about sex relationships you know condoms contraception terminations etc etc you know there's actually no law that says you have to be over a certain age to have that information given to you and I I think a lot of people just don't realize that that actually everybody has exactly the same right to have the that information made accessible and inclusive for them, yeah. And actually, you you're not allowed to deny somebody from having yeah. it. 
Yeah, and and I think definitely about keeping the dialogue open, and also mm. and also kind of explaining to parents in a way that, you know, this will keep people safer because they'll have the information. Whereas if they didn't Absolutely. have, if they didn't have the information, you know, they, that by not telling them about sex doesn't mean and and relationship doesn't mean that they're not gonna have it. They'll just no. be un, they'll just be having exactly. it uninformed. Yeah. And possibly well, in what secret. What strikes me as well, what strikes me as well, is that you know services as such, service land as we call it, have created an issue. It doesn't need to be an issue because if we were having everyday conversations with the people we support, if we had real relationships with people, we got to know them. Part of life is sensuality, loving relationships, and sometimes sex, intimate sex, isn't it? So we almost, as a system make it out to be something out of the normal yeah than it's just part of the everyday so how as we move forward we stop saying we're gonna have a conversation with you about sex but just our everyday chat saying oh what are they doing on tv they're kissing what do you think of kissing or you know well what's that bit when we're watching so the everyday conversation we would all have often i imagine with friends i don't have kids but with kids as, as you're raising children and stuff as well but in the system world, the service world, we, we make a big fuss and say it's unnatural. Yet, as you're saying, Jill and Claire, it's a legal right to have this knowledge. So why are we nervous for having these conversations in the first place? Why are we asking permission? Well, the, the, the other thing that happens is when you make it something that is an inconvenience or something that we don't talk about, it's like Claire was saying, it doesn't stop happening, it just happens exactly. in, in secret. Exactly. In secret then, with no support... Yeah. You know, we're, with with much hot. You know, I don't like talking about risk as the way that we discuss sex, but the reality is, is if that is how it's happening, then it is happening in secret, and it, it is more risky. Yeah. You know, there's no framework for it. Do you want to do? Do you want to do another one? Yeah. <laughs> you, are, are we, yeah. Go on. You can Go read on. Them out, Shall I read them out? You can read them. So I'm gonna leave the I'm gonna leave the capacity one to the end because it's a bit of a doozy so next one is so what if somebody wants their partner to stay over so i've got a client with a boyfriend or girlfriend and they want them to stay over uh, what what do we do sam the klaxon help <laughs> oh, well i mean they're an, they're an adult it's their own home i honestly cannot see any reason why unless there was something about that person mm-hmm. that meant they were an unsafe they were unsafe to be coming to if they lived in a shared home i mean if they were a registered sex offender mm-hmm. or something and they wanted to come to a house for vulnerable people i don't know if unless there was some reason why the person um couldn't couldn't come over like if there's any I, but I that would be the see. same reason as you might not have them around for dinner do you know what i mean exactly, <laughs> you know? yeah yeah exactly yeah. so maybe if they weren't allowed to, no yeah there shouldn't be any there shouldn't be any reason and i've heard some ridiculous answers as to why well we talked this morning about the whole logistics of well it's a shared house so you know they can't come round. Uh, but i mean you know we we were discussing that again this morning you know i mean just because it's a shared house it doesn't mean that you yeah you can only see the people that live in the house. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and and I, I think, you know, when we, we at Paradigm talk about support for living and stuff, and I think we're living in a shared house, you have to be sensitive to the other people living in the house. But that's the same as you or I would with a group of flatmates, wouldn't it? So if yeah. you a boyfriend or girlfriend home, you wouldn't have them walking naked around the house in front of your housemates. There'd be some general agreements about how you use your shared space and private space. Yeah. So it's no different for people with 
living with support in the sense, is it? And and that's the thing. But I I it's not even my gut, my knowledge. I know that majority of providers would say it can't happen. Absolutely know that. And I absolutely know they would say that in the belief they're protecting the vulnerable people they support. So again, it's that thing that we don't think ordinarily, do we? So it's a group of housemates together. What do you do to make sure that one does inconvenience or you leave loads of dirty washing up in the sink when your boyfriend or girlfriend stays over or that stuff? But that's every day, isn't it? But yeah. again, the system has made it into this massive issue. Yeah. Uh, well, if, yeah, yeah. It feels like, well, you know, they can't stay over because it's very inconvenient and everybody will be at risk. Yeah. But, but that's not real life, is it? I mean, you know, it's somebody's boyfriend or girlfriend being invited around. It's not like some monster that's coming to the house. That's yeah. Gonna, but, but I think most providers would... Unders- I'm going to almost say, I did say nearly say understandably, because I think if I'm still a chief exec, I'd be going, okay, who's staying in the house with, these pe- with the people I'm yeah. paid to support? So what would I need to do to reassure myself and others that um, this was okay. So whilst in my heart I want to be completely ordinary in the way I think about it and just negotiate shared space and don't walk around naked and all the rest of it, um, <laughs> there's a bit of me that I think, how, I don't, oh, I don't know, I don't know. It's, it's hard, isn't it? Because do you get to know the boyfriend, girlfriend, but then you're making judgments, value judgments. And like you said, Claire, unless there's some... Uh, criminal reason that the or you know known reason the person is unsafe to be around why would we say no but at the same time how would we find out if they have a record do we really want to please check or check on people who have who are partners because that's overstepping the mark as well isn't it so i made that very confusing but it is actually quite confusing but Even it's though, like, essentially it's simple i mean it's like what if somebody so in theory you or i could go out on an evening and meet, you know, hook up with somebody and go home with them. Yeah. And if we're all equal in our rights, yeah, our clients have the same rights. Right, exactly. I'd... I totally agree with the rights, but I think that's easy to say. Yeah, oh, yeah, no, I agree. How do you put that do? into it? How, how do we support people, support workers to go, actually, this is a right that we shouldn't be stopping? I but, most of, right. but most of the time, we're not even talking about random, like, one off people. No, it's really rare. We're, isn't we're, it? we're no, talking. Exactly. We're talking. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, had a, I had an example years ago where we had to tell somebody they couldn't bring sex workers into a shared house. Uh-huh. Um, because they they were other vulnerable people there. And, uh, well, it's difficult, isn't it? Because actually, sex work isn't illegal. illegal. It's the it's it's all to do with how how the yeah how it's procured yeah. and how that person is engaged. Yeah. And actually, it might you know I mean if you if I mean this is a whole other so we've gone completely down the rabbit hole now, haven't we? It's, it's like there's, it's not illegal for somebody to engage a professional for services shall we say i suppose it you know it it would be again about how that was being how that was being engaged and how how the services were being obtained shall we say so it was somebody that they were meeting just on the street potentially which is very unusual these days but I'm not hundred yeah. percent sure. Well, it was in the time before the internet, but so, you know, but, but we're not talking about that most of the time. We're talking about you know people. No, exactly. We're talking about like someone sharing, you know, a boyfriend, a long term yeah. partner, more or less. There just really shouldn't be. It shouldn't be an issue, should it? I mean, the the bit that to me the only bit that we, it gets sort of a bit 
where you have to think about it more is if it is that sort of situation where somebody wants to bring someone home that they've just met, which you know, re- you know, realistically, yes, it is their right, same as it's yours or mine. But there would be, you know, things that but you've got I to think, think about think, more. But yeah, I mean, I think what we're saying is there is an absolute right, but in reality, I, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to water this down. But in reality, if there are three people living in a house or four yeah. people living in a house. It's up to maybe the support team to have these conversations on going again, saying, well, you do know it's your home. So if you want to bring someone home, it's okay. But if you did, so even if you had a, a platonic friend stay in your room overnight and that was someone adding to the shared space, it's agreeing with the people you support in the house. How will they support each other? How do they feel about that? So one can't necessarily deny, but how do you accommodate the needs and wishes of the people sharing their home? So, so maybe it's something that should an ongoing conversation it's just a sad reflection that we're even talking about because actually it doesn't happen much so no even even to have a friend stay over how often do we see that happening or do we see services so you can't do that so we're not paid to support you when the risk assessment says this so i think it's oh the risk assessment (laughs) which i think is massive but we're saying absolutely the rights are there and we tread over people's rights all the time in social care so we need to be alert to this we need to stop doing it we need to have conversations with the people we support about what's ordinary living. So, you know, you'll make come and stay if they want to. If you've got a boyfriend, girlfriend, that's okay. Maybe what you could do is come and introduce them to your housemates and then we'd agree, you know, you know what time you cook your dinner and so it doesn't get in the way of the others or whatever. I don't know. But it's yeah. having those conversations, yeah. isn't it, without making it into a regulation or a system thing. One of the things I was interested about when I did, this is going down another rabbit hole, was when I did my... Um... I did a survey, the Supported Loving survey, and we asked people, did they know, did they think the people they support knew they had the right to have their partner stay overnight? Most people said they thought the people they knew didn't know they had the right. And exactly, so, that's so people, the issue, So people, and then, and then, but then I'm like, they'd never, why weren't they sharing a bed? And the, the most common answer question was they'd never asked. Mm. But um, does staff know? Does staff know that it's their right as well? You know, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, so, I mean, where I am, because it's, cause it's education, so it's slightly different, but we've got, you know, young adults up to 25. It's a question that I'm asked often, are they allowed to go in each, to go in each other's rooms? <laughs> you know, let alone stay in them, you know. Do they stay in them? Um, we've had, it hasn't come up recently, but we have had, we had a relationship, there was one with a young man who lived in residential and uh, his his girlfriend was a day student and she used to come and stop over on a Friday night. Yeah. You know, and the rest of the, the rest of the house had discreetly removed themselves. Much like, you know, when you're a student yeah. and you're sharing a flat, the rest of the house would remove themselves to the pub for the evening. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? And that was that. Um, so I think it's very much looked at, you know, person by person and engaged with and whatnot. But it's it's just interesting that it's still something that staff ask about. New staff ask me that a lot. Are yeah. they allowed in each other's room? Are they allowed to do this? Are they allowed to do that? So it does strike me that it's something that staff don't know is a right. And, and, and that goes right back to the stuff that we find all the time. Is we've mm. created supported loving into some deregistered care system and we're not supporting people to live in their own tenancies, in their own homes like you or I would. Do you mean supported living? No, I mean support for living is what we talk about now. So no, 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 you said supported my... loving. Uh, no. No, my computer. Sorry, oh, ignore me. I'll edit this all out. <laughs> yeah, no, what, what, I, what I was trying to explain is that the way often people, staff behave in somebody's home 
is reflects the culture of the organization mm. that says this is the way you must behave because it's a supportive living setting and what we argue at paradigm is we need to get rid of this idea that supported living is some sort of predetermined system or model because our job when we support people in their own homes is to support them to live isn't it yeah. and nothing is part of that so we need to move forward from supported living i think to support for living and then <laughs> then it'll get really confusing because supported loving is support people to live a life isn't it and everything we're talking about is stuff oh should i let them their housemate go in the room with the other housemate well for goodness sake where do where do people get that idea from it must be within management within systems within cultures I think people are just really scared of making a mistake. I think people are scared of making a mistake. What if they got pregnant? What if... if, It would be my fault. It would be my fault. (laughs) Oh, dear. No, but you you are right, though. I mean, this is... People only ever have sex at night when they're in bed, don't they? Yeah, totally. They don't don't do it in the afternoon when they're upstairs. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's true, though, isn't it? I mean, you know, thinking about how how my students who, who live in care provision so they're not they don't live with us they're living in you know in in supported living or in care i mean yeah they might not stop over with their partner very often but it doesn't mean they're not you know getting any (laughs) because you're right you know they're going over and seeing each other in you know in their bedrooms in in the afternoons or whenever whenever i don't know (sighs) i got a lot of discussion going didn't it um I will. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna come to the capacity one last. I think because it, it's okay. more, it's the most complex. Um, although this one sort of ties to it. So, it's another family what if one. So what if, what if my client's family, don't want their relative or don't support their relative to have a relationship. So that, you know, then so the the client is not living with family. They're living in in supported you know, supported provision, but the family are not supporting them in having a relationship. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. I've heard it. Mm-hmm. I've heard it happen. We had, uh, we had a situation where we had a family member not wanting their uh, daughter to have a relationship with someone. Mm. They were of a different ethnic background to them, and it was... Yeah, I've encountered there that. There wasn't... <laughs> It wasn't that they were racist. It was in that sense. It was because they were they were, it was they had to marry within their own. There's a cultural expectation. Yeah. I well, so have, I don't know if it would have been. And maybe so maybe that's different. But but we we did support the person event to to to, to continue to to, 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 to continue to have the relationship and to stand up to her to support to stand up to her family saying this is what she wanted. It's it was really very difficult. difficult. It was very difficult. We had a similar one with. Um, with a lady that I used to see, um, I, I used to volu- I used to do volunteer work with, and basically what had happened was her mum had died. Her mum had passed away, and she'd started a relationship with a, a young man that she really they really liked each other a lot, and she was getting a lot of you know sort of support from this young man, but her family now that her mum was gone, were very very over overprotective and were very prescriptive about what she couldn't couldn't do and the reality was that they stopped her attending social stuff oh, no. so that she couldn't see him you know because well you know that's not not what you do not what you do and it was really difficult you know i mean the, the long and the short of it is is that 
you know, if, if I'm being really harsh about it, what so you know, what if your family don't want you to have a relationship? Well, what if they don't? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, I you know. I'm... I think I, I I just it's it's really hard. It's a bit like the response to the first question is spend time with the family, getting to know, understand, and mm. stuff. You know, maybe as providers, well, we need to be better at hosting conversations with families, inviting them in to talk about this stuff. You know, again, going back to Liz, Liz is saying, why do we assume families know how to talk about sex? Or, well, you know, indeed. Like, so how do we, in, and, and there was a request at the meeting, I think, wasn't there, that there, the organisation thought more about having conversations with families. Families that were there, carers that were there, felt it'd be good to have some conversations separate from their sons and daughters initially, yeah. so they could get their heads around it. So we do sex ed for the people we support, but what what don't we do? So when I was training as a family planning trainer, whatever it was, back in the I don't know early two thousand or late nineteen nineties, you know we ran a training course to have parents, carers as as trainers and mentors for other parents who had yeah. children with learning disabilities. And I was working with 30-year-olds, 20-year-olds, and 80-year-olds in a group. So I had one parent burst into tears in a session and tell me about her physical and emotional abuse from her husband. And she was in her 80s. And so she, li- uh-huh. and, you know, and she, this stuff that came out, so the human beings that are carers as well have a whole history of fear, don't they? You know, what if my child gets pregnant and I'm left? having to look after another baby because my child won't be able to which I know isn't true but that's the assumption so um, I suppose all I agree with everything you said and then there's that bit okay well how do we make time to understand the fears and wishes and aspirations of carers and parents and families and you know because people were asking for that weren't they mm, so, uh, it's... so I, I, and then that mum who was in her 80s oh my god it must be she was just I, I don't know if she told anybody else but um it was very powerful to her to be able to say that and then that led to a whole unravelling of other stuff so but families are left to struggle and cope aren't they and then we come along quite rightly and I'm just like you do I go well people's rights people's rights I'm going (laughs) but it's getting that balance isn't it but also there's something about if the family member doesn't want them to have a relationship there's also an evidence a bit to say like well why are we why why should they have to know if they're having a relationship. Like, I remember somebody was saying, I can't where I was, and they were saying about telling the parents. And I said, well, does, do they want their parents to know? Well, like, indeed. you know, like, I mean, they might do it as a serious, you know, as a serious... I, I didn't tell my parents everything about my ins and outs. Well... And... I was a youth worker when the Gillick court case happened. Yes. So, took... I had no legal duty to tell families with children... Was it 16, Jill, wasn't it? Well, at the age of 16, so I had no legal... My, my responsibility was to advise the young person to talk to their family, but I had no legal obligation to talk to their family. It's all I was talking and about. And that's the same for disabilities. Exactly. I was talking about this earlier on, because I used to work for Brooke, yeah. um, which is, you know, sexual health services for under-25s. And I think how we look at it... So the, the Gillick case, as you know, led to the phrase, the guidelines, which is how we check to see whether somebody is... Oh, and this will feed in nicely to the capacity question, actually, maybe. Um, so the Fraser guidelines are a set of guidelines that you use to ascertain whether somebody can make a decision about their contraceptive and sexual health and needs and things like that. Yeah. And because the Gillick case dealt with somebody that was under the age of consent yeah. accessing contraceptions, just for people who don't know what we're, what we're talking about. Um, and so basically what it says is that you 
ask a set of questions that ascertain whether somebody fits into that those guidelines whether they meet the guidelines criteria and then if they do even if they're under 16 then a they are able to consent and b you don't have to tell their parents yeah and what strikes me is that you know having worked at brook if you like i mean i've had 13 year olds who've had more agency over their sexual and intimate lives than some of the adults that we work with yeah. you know and i think sometimes we do completely forget that you know actually you you don't have to make a disclosure about somebody's private no. stuff at all actually no. And it's it's interesting. I mean, we used to it's say safeguarding issue all the time. Exactly, it's all about <laughs> risk, 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 isn't it? You know, I mean, it's sometimes yeah. it's not about risk. Sometimes it's just about being private. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, you don't have to. If you think about like our lives, I mean, you don't have to introduce your parents to your partner until you're good and ready, if yeah. ever, you know. Yeah. And I think we sort of forget that really that having a relationship isn't like an you know a, a natural state of emergency that must be dealt with. It's like. You know, it's a, it's a, a, a real yeah. important part of the aspect of your life, you know, rather than a problem. And that's the issue. We still work on a risk matrix. We still work on risk assessments. We still work on who's culpable for what. And then the, the outcome of that is is that, you know, if somebody gets into a relationship, we feel like we need to tell everybody immediately so that they, you know, so that everybody sees it and it's all visible and it's all safe because everyone's witnessing it and it's transparent and they're all fine. And actually that's not how it, that's not how your life works, is it no. really? So do you, want me to, do you want me to ask the capacity question on, now? Oh, <laughs> it's too much for a Monday, this one. I know. Okay, so are you ready? Are you strapped in, Sally? So, how do you know? It's like it's like asking how long is a piece of string. How do you know if somebody has capacity to have sex? <sighs> it's a question I do get asked. I was, I said I was at an event the other day and somebody told me about um two people they were supporting in a relationship. They're like, oh well, yeah, no, they had they had the capacity assessments for sex. It's all right. Yeah, they're having a relationship. They're having sex. They had they had their assessments, so don't worry about it. They have capacity. Um, oh. And, um, and and I was just kind of like, did you have concerns that they lacked capacity? And they're like, no, but we did one, we did an assessment anyway, just just in case, to cover our backs. To cover our backs. To cover our backs. Oh, God. And I'm just like, you know, oh. like so. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because mm. they didn't want to be in trouble, and I'm like, that is. <sighs> you didn't want to be in trouble for facilitating people to have a normal life. Yeah. You do what most adults you do. do. What most adults do. It's funny, isn't it? The whole capacity assessment thing is really. It's so slippery, and people have got such a misunderstanding about it. So, yeah, absolutely. Like, if you, if you assessed my capacity to have sex, right, right, and I mean, how? Oh, Oh my God! It does, it's just such a big, it's such a big area. I mean, like, what kind of sex? What context? How drunk am I? Do I fancy you or not? Have you talked? Do I have I known you a long time? Or... Yeah, have I known you for ages or not? Do you, do you, you know? Am I sure you're going to be using a condom? Yeah, how do I know that you're not going to want to do bum sex after or something? So you know, it's like, all of that comes <laughs> down to real risk and value judgment, doesn't it? It does, which and you, you can't expect risk and value judgment about people's capacity and. What you're saying, I think, is we don't have the right to determine, no. do we? So we can't just go around saying, you you have, you don't. Um, and that's a misunderstanding. I'll let you clarify that, Jill, if you're better at that. That's a misunderstanding. But I just, I, I, I sort of go silent a bit. Cause I, can, I just, 
I'm, I, I struggle to know what to say to this, but other than we don't have the right to do that, but no. the fact is people do it all the time. They do it with their behaviour, the, the non-verbal stuff, stuff, don't they? With a look, an eye, with a with a, a judgment, with a control thing. They make sure people don't get any time alone. All the time we're denying those liberties, which is us passing a value judgment about someone's ability to do something that we don't have the right to make a judgment about. It's really difficult. It is, but that is one of those things where you do have someone, you, if someone is having sex with someone and they do lack capacity, then that is, you know, that it, that isn't good. No, I mean... So it is, <sighs> you know, that is, that is tricky because... I mean, the, the thing that I suppose we come back to again and again is how do you assess whether somebody has... How do you really know if someone's got capacity or not? Will you mm. make opportunities to ensure that people do have capacity as much as they possibly can so you know so you have open conversations and you make a culture where people can talk about stuff and discuss things and yeah you know engage with it properly i mean yeah so the long and the short of it is how can you as an individual care or support worker or or, or whoever make a decision or an ascertainment about whether somebody has the capacity or not is you can't even if you think you know you can't make that decision so, so what would you suggest, so in the great support movement, this uh, movement that we've started, you know, what would you, what advice would you give support workers? If they, they were concerned, what should they do? I think you can only be concerned if you actually think there is some exploitation or abuse going on. Like, if, you know, or something that you think isn't. So people, two people just having sex is, oh, this is controversial. It's not just, it's not reason to be concerned. There has to be something about the context of the, the setting or the people involved that gives genuine cause for concern. And I think if there is genuine cause for concern, you do what you would do in any other safeguarding situation mm. and you talk to somebody else. You don't just make a decision. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I suppose what we would, I would suggest support workers do as well is chat about it. You said earlier, before we were on air actually, talk to your manager, talk yeah. to your supervisor. You know, we have a duty to supervise our staff well, our support work as well. We, we should be helping them with their reflective practice. We should be helping think about how they respond, what they think, what they've experienced, what they would do differently in the future. I don't think we do that very well. So we need to ensure, you talked about a culture as well, that, that support workers cannot just talk to each other about it, which is potentially gossipy yes. about people's private confidential lives, but can in all good faith speak confidentially to a line manager and say, oh, it's quite interesting, this so-and-so is having sex and I'm not sure how I feel about this. I know that I can't legally stop that and I'm not judging it, but so, so rather than let it boil up inside you or in the past when I was managing a team directly, it became, you know, the coffee break gossip and, and that's not right, is it? No. So, in terms of confidentiality policies and things, people's rights to have a private life. But if a support worker is feeling uncertain, uncomfortable, they need to be supported to reflect and learn and know that, it, that it's okay to feel uncomfortable, but it's okay that there are people having sex. <laughs> it's not yeah. okay to say they can't or shouldn't or don't have capacity. Because I think the worry is, is that if you, yeah. if, if you raise it, then... It's, it's, it goes back to the thing, doesn't it? If you raise the issue that two of your clients are having sex, then I think we legitimately have staff who would be fearful because they know that two of their clients are having sex and they haven't Absolutely. stopped them. Absolutely. They'd you be know, terrified. I, the people in the great support movement tell me, I'm just terrified we'll get into trouble. Yeah. yeah. 
you know, because it is this whole culture of service, this whole culture, these are the rules you follow. And, you know, God, you know, talk to Paul Richards about trying to get support workers free to stay up past nine o'clock. Yeah, you know, well. The idea of support workers being comfortable to say, yeah, it's okay, you can go and have sex. So I won't yeah. tell you. You know, it's just like, <laughs> we're, we're so close to the hideous institutional days and that behaviour is still in many settings that we call supported living. It's mm. institutional support that is disguised as something else. And yeah. it's how we shift all that, isn't and it? And having just, you know, having your own front door key to a house where you can't decide who comes in and where they stay. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're not, yeah. And I think I probably said in the first podcast we did that whole thing about capacity to consent for me is partly about knowing what you like and enjoy and understanding your body and what's private and what isn't. And being, and, being exposed to the kind of conversation. And yeah, let's, yeah, let's yeah. be honest, materials if you want them and, yeah. you know, discussions and opportunities to figure that out. Yeah, absolutely. You know. Yeah. Mm. Interesting porn's another interesting thing, isn't it? Because the guidelines we used to have where I was chief exec, and I'm sure they're probably based on national, is that in terms of buying porn for people, you can't go and buy it and bring it to them. But if you're in the news agents and someone points at the top shelf to say they want it, you can take it down and give it to them. Yes. But how many people actually know the porn's there? I, I, I admit now porn's on the internet, obviously, and I'm yeah. showing the age, but that's where pe- most people go for it. But um, And again, that... The fear of the system, as I keep calling it, is that we then block people having Facebook and everything else because we're worried they'll find porn. So I'm going off on another tangent. No, but that was a question. But you, <laughs> but you know what though? It's a really important question because the the very real outcome of preventing people from having real life opportunities, if you like, mm. is that things become funneled and focused online because the things yeah. that all the opportunities are online now. We we you know we live we now live in a time where everything is there as an you know, yeah. you, you can have it as an alternative medium there. And actually what that is is stuff without context. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's really confusing for people. We had this earlier. conversation earlier, you know, we were yeah. talking about the kind of if we think about porn, like how many of your staff, as a general question, would be able to have an upfront, open conversation about porn and know what's legal and what's not legal to look at? Because there are yeah. regulations around it, yeah, absolutely. you know, and where to, where to look for stuff that's a bit more ethical, <laughs> you know, how, and how to set things into context. How to set things into context. So one of the things we were talking about this morning, and this is completely off down the rabbit hole now, but I think it bears repeating, was we were talking about how when you look on some of the free porn clip websites, for example, so some of the categories are really confusing and some of the videos that are right at the top, there's loads of focus at the moment about sort of obviously fantasy but incestuous setups you know and that's really confusing if you're st- and what I'm coming back round to I suppose not not you know not not to focus too much on the content but if your staff don't work in a setting where they feel that they can talk openly and supported to talk openly and confident to talk openly about stuff with people then you know we we really are um leaving people very vulnerable I think staff and clients and I, I think so much of it I'm, I'm slightly obsessed at the moment all I work at paradigms I keep saying wherever I go it all comes down to relationships yeah if, if we keep making people live with paid support from people 
their lives, who change on a regular basis, who don't like them, who don't really get to know mm-hmm. them. Yeah. We're not going to be able to have these really quite personal, intimate conversations naturally. And we, we are, it just drives me insane because I don't care how aspirational it seems. But to me, imagine living your life with people supporting you, paid support you, you don't like, you don't know, and they change regularly. Whenever I say that to conferences or anywhere, the people sit there and start to shift in their chairs looking comfortable. Because you or I wouldn't accept it. And if we did have it, we'd probably become quite challenging or withdrawn, one or the other. We may not be happy, and we we would be seeking all sorts of comfort and reassurance. So relationships, what I'm saying, comes down to everything, doesn't it? Because I totally it agree with you. You need to be able to have in staff teams those conversations about porn, sexuality, etc. But to have that conversation with someone and your paid support, there has to be something more than that functional arrangement. I'm here for two hours, you know, or four, six, eight hours, whatever. I'm here and I know you and I get you and I'm going to start exploring life and discover who you are and have these conversations and feel confident about doing that because I know you. Yeah. And that's it, you know, I mean, it's, it's got to be part of how we, how we build relationships with clients, you know. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That's everything, isn't it? Open dialogue, like the stuff with the families like the stuff with the staff all open dialogues supervision management relationships team culture if we're thinking about if we're thinking about modelling positive relationships and appropriate intimacy you know in whatever context with clients we can't expect that to be done effectively when it is like you're saying Sally you know a relationship where you've got me for two hours I don't really like you um, you know, and now tell me all your stuff, please, and I'll make a decision about whether you can see your boyfriend later. You know, Absolutely. I mean, that's that's a really, yeah. you know, so it sounds a bit damning, but it's yeah. that that's the issue, isn't it? That we expect people to do as we do and do as we say, and not necessarily what we do. Yeah. And, and one of the things I often say is that highlighting stuff like this, I don't, I personally don't believe in guilt. I think it's about acknowledging what we're doing at the moment. I've had the last 30 odd years supporting, in brackets, people learn disabilities. I have done stuff in those 30 years I wish I hadn't done. Mm. I'm not sure I feel guilty about it. I'm really glad I've learned and changed and moved forward. And I think, so we're none of the three of us are in no way judging services and damning, are we? But we're saying actually just stop a minute and think about what we're doing. And if we just stop for a second and think about what we're doing, we know it's not okay. So what are we going to do today, tomorrow, small steps to start changing the way we interact with the people we support and how we value them and how we support them, our teams as well. And I think that's what you're saying, Jill, is that we're not saying that we have to find a way of just acknowledging where we ain't doing it right and figure out how together we can do better. And what we need to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Ooh, you just went a bit funny then. Uh, so um, hopefully I'll be a bit quicker with the next podcast than I was with the last one. <laughs> it took so long. Um, yeah, uh, anything else you want to say? No, except that if, if people have got any ideas, I guess, for things that they'd like us to cover in podcasts, anything specific, yeah. anybody you'd like us to go and talk to, yeah, anyone? Uh, we're always on for an adventure. Yes. Um, so, or if you would like to talk to us, that might be a good. Yeah, you know, if you've got so, if you've got something that you'd like to come and chat about, then please tell us because we're we're all ears. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.